This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Since the Auditor General released a scathing report on Canada's pandemic preparedness, the Chief Medical Officer has been defending her initial response to COVID-19. It wasn't wrong, Teresa Tam has been saying, the domestic risk at that moment in time for the cases in Canada was relatively low. So the question is, do you buy that explanation? Critics dispute it. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Auditor General, General Karen Hogan. Hello, thank you so much. Hi, Libby. It's great to be here. Well, uh, first of all, your reaction uh, to my ears, the chief medical officer didn't sound very apologetic about the many failings of uh, her early response. Uh, well, I can sympathize to some degree. It's hard or it's easy, I guess, to sit here now a year later and look back and be able to comment on what should have been done differently. Hindsight is, is, a, is a wonderful thing. And it is difficult in the moment um, to be able to make decisions. Uh, and our audit focused on uh, the pandemic preparedness and surveillance and border control measures uh, at, at the beginning stages of, of the pandemic. And what we found was that uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada was not as prepared uh, to respond uh, to a pandemic of this nature as, as they should have been. And uh, one of those items was using a risk assessment tool that was not designed to consider pandemic risk, which is incorporates sort of a forward-looking, uh, spreading kind of aspect. And, and we highlighted that as one of four uh, weaknesses that we found in our audit. Well, yes, she based her assist, assist, assessments on just looking at the situation inside the country at any given moment in time where, you know, and this while we were all watching what was going on in the rest of the world. I mean, I remember, you know, uh, shaking my head and thinking, you know, there's no way this isn't coming here. Well, you know, one of the items that we did also notice as a weakness was um, the fact that the Public Health Agency of Canada had not um, addressed some longstanding issues uh, related to a data sharing and health surveillance information with the provinces and the territories. I think that's really a key aspect um, to look at. One, it's an issue that had been raised repeatedly all the way back to 1999, uh, something that we've mentioned in three previous audit reports in 1999, in 2002, and in 2008, something the agency itself had identified as its lessons learned from SARS and H1N1. And so I think it's important to note that you need that kind of data uh, to identify features of a virus, to be able to adjust your response um, as needed. And, uh, you know, what, what you're talking about related to the tool, though, does highlight that you can have all the data that you need. You can have um, a good tool. Uh, you can have machine learning, but you still need human judgment that needs to be applied to all of that to really inform the response. And that's where, you know, we credit the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada uh, for actually stepping in, even though the tool kept saying low and, and asking for that risk rating to be raised. Well, it was only after it was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. Uh, well, I think that's uh, one of the features in the evolving nature, for sure. Uh, but if you look at the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, um, that network issues two, uh, two reports. It issues a daily report and an alert. Uh, and um, the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada really did react after a daily report at the end of December uh, included a link to a virus. Um, that will then, you know, later on become known as the virus causing COVID-19. Uh, she did use that to signal uh, a discussion and a dialogue and more action with her provincial counterparts. 
but, you know, one of our findings was that that Global Public Health Intelligent Next Network should have also issued an alert, which is meant to signal something more unusual um, and impactful that really does need you to stop and decide what kind of action you needed. Well, uh, th- th- that organization's highly regarded international alert system was canceled early in 2019 by the government. How, how big a problem was that? So what we, we didn't see that the um, network was canceled. What we found in our audit was that the Global Public Health Intelligence Network was not used as it was intended uh, to be used. We saw a change in certain operating procedures about who should approve the issuance of an alert. It used to be an analyst, and it was changed back in 2018 to require senior management approval. And following that, there was a substantial decline in the amount of alerts that were issued, uh, which is why we've told the um, Public Health Agency of Canada that they really do need to figure out what they want from uh, this network, uh, make it clear, and then and then use it as intended. Because in the past, we saw alerts issued for H1N1 and SARS, and at the time, they were credited with some of the response in the country. So uh, part of the problem was that the science people were not in charge. Oh, I don't know if I would call it a problem. The science people were there feeding information, but it's really unclear why an alert uh, wasn't issued. Was it the approvals? Um, was it the analysis? It, it's unclear. And that's why I do think the agency needs to um, figure out how to use uh, what they want from the network. Um, the alerts are also meant to alert our international counterparts, uh, whereas the daily reports that I mentioned earlier are just domestically shared. Uh, so there is also a responsibility about keeping international uh, counterparts uh, informed of alerts And we saw alerts being issued throughout the pandemic for an Ebola-type virus and a tick virus. And so there are still alerts coming. Um, As I say, it goes back to it's not clear why one wasn't issued when it came to COVID-19. Your report also found that, uh, uh, Dr. Tam, they failed to update an emergency management plan. The update was due in 2018, as well as pandemic preparedness plan in 2019. Uh, Did you find, was that budget pressures? Uh, You know, it had been a long time since SARS. Do Do you find any reason for that? You know, again, I wish that we could always find the root causes when we do audits. It's not always clear, but you're right. We did find that emergency and health plans um, were not as up-to-date as they should have been. But more importantly, that the federal, provincial, and territorial response plan had not yet been tested. And that's the plan that's been guiding um, the the response uh, throughout throughout the pandemic. I think what this highlights is the importance uh, that we should all be placing on being better prepared in, in prevention. It's something that we all too often don't think about until we're in a pandemic. And uh, we should take advantage of that time between crises to, to get uh, get everyone ready. Um, again, here, it was a longstanding issue that we had raised uh, for quite some time. And so uh, I, I do uh, believe that they, they need to make this a priority going forward. Um, you know, a, an exercise allows you to identify um, any obstacles you might have, any gaps or, or resource issues or, or capacity issues. And, and we need to figure that out, not in the middle of the pandemic, but before the next crisis. Do you think that th- that that department needs a complete overhaul or anything like that? Well, that really wasn't the focus of our audit to look at, um, you know, how they were structured. Uh, I, I think that they came into existence following a crisis and um, their mandate's a clear one. Uh, what they need to do is uh, place better value on um, acting on known issues. Uh, it's not an unknown um, concern that we raise in so many of our audits and in, in various topics is, um, you know, no one wants to uh, invest in IT systems and some of those back office things like being prepared. Um, and a crisis just shows you the importance of all of that. And so um, I think it's just a matter of tackling those issues uh, before we need to rely on it again. And I also think that that's why I recommended um, that you know, a countrywide analysis when the pandemic's over needs to be done. A lot of this is key about sharing information between different levels of government. And as the federal auditor general, I can only look at federal programs and federal funding. So someone with a broader reach needs to look at 
the response across the nation and how we can do better next time. Okay. Thank you so much, Auditor General Karen Hogan. It was my pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Right now, uh, let's bring in Wesley Wark. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa who analyzed the risk assessments during the onset of the outbreak, and he has worked on the Auditor General's report. Wesley, welcome. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the program, Libby. Now, you have called Theresa Tam's uh, response to this as defending the indefensible. Yes. I have. Um, and I was surprised by it, frankly. I, I thought the Auditor General's uh, report into pandemic um, uh, response was a very strong and, and excellent report. And, you know, one of the important things to be about Auditor General's reports is that, you know, if they require a department or agency that's the subject of their study to respond in writing. And the Public Health Agency of Canada accepted all of the recommendations and findings which is terrific. And they've, you know, promised to fix all of the range of problems that um, the Auditor General uh, identified, including around risk assessments, and given themselves a timetable, maybe a slightly too leisurely timetable to do that from my perspective, but at least they've given themselves a timetable to make those fixes. But then to have, you know, with all due respect to Dr. Tam and the, you know, the terrific work she's done and the enormous pressures her office is under, then to have the Chief Public Health Officer and her deputy you know, come out and say uh, in a press briefing that the risk assessments, you know, need to be more predictive in future, but weren't wrong. I mean, that just is, from my perspective, um, you know, it, it, it's just the wrong kind of uh, approach to try and defend the indefensible. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and I find it astonishing that the entire basis for her risk assessment was what was happening here in our country on any at any given point in time. I mean, you know, you, you just had to turn on the TV to see what was going on in other parts of the world. Yeah, when I, when I first got access to the risk assessments, which, which I did through an Access to Information Act, I, I, was, you know, I was staggered by what I was reading in, in detail. Uh, the, the, you know, the thing that they called risk assessments were not risk assessments at all. Uh, they weren't really trying to extrapolate from the global experience of uh, COVID-19, starting in China, spreading to the region, uh, spreading to, you know, globally as it had begun to do it by the end of January. They were, they were simply looking inwards. And, uh, you know, that, that was a fundamental um, problem in terms of the methodology they used and one of the reasons why the Auditor General calls attention to the need for them to do risk assessments very differently in the future but, but the reality is that also the language of the risk assessments was predictive. I mean, they were basing this inward-looking, um, you know, they were using this inward-looking count. There are X number of cases in Canada, but also, you know, predicting that the risk in the future to Canada and Canadians would be low. And they said that throughout January, throughout February, and they only changed that risk assessment on March 16th. By Absolutely. Which time there were more than 400 cases in Canada. There were a, you know, even a higher number of cases in the United States. And, and then we were suddenly plunged into this kind of emergency response. And we'd lost two and a half months of, of lead time to prepare. Do you think that part of the problem is that the public health agency relied too much on what the World Health Organization was saying, and that, uh, you know, um, under the thumb of China, to a certain extent. Well, you know, Libby, my, my view on that would be the complete opposite. I mean, I, there were clearly problems in terms of the early reporting by Chinese authorities to the WHO, which they're required to do under international law with regard to the COVID-19 outbreak. But once the Chinese central administration in Beijing really got a sense of how dangerous the crisis was to them, uh, they ceased to be interested in trying to tap down information, and they swung into action uh, to try and control, you know, the outbreak in, in China using some, you know, remarkable powers and, and tools. The World Health Organization uh, was uh, producing information about COVID-19 and its risks that was far in advance of what Canada was saying. And, and just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here, on January 26th, the World Health Organization uh, produces a, a daily situation report that's available on its website. It's sent around the world to all member countries, essentially, of the United Nations. 
On the 26th of, of January, you know, following on the measures that China was instituting uh, in Wuhan and, and, you know, throughout the country, raised own global risk rating for COVID-19 to high. We didn't follow the WHO rating until March 16th. So, you know, there's a gap there of two months. Four days later, the World Health Organization declares that the coronavirus outbreak is it's something that won't be familiar to your listeners' ears, a public health emergency of international concern. And, and this is an important instrument available to the WHO and built into their international health regulations that were revised after SARS, and it was designed to send a clear signal to the global community that the, the global spread of COVID is real, it's coming to your country, you need to take preparations. We never even referred to that declaration in any of the risk assessments that we did uh, after January 30th. Why do you think that is? That is a million-dollar question, Libby. I, I think, I mean, I, you know, this may sound harsh. I think we suffered from a terrible failure of imagination uh, about the potential impact of COVID-19. We suffered from a system in the federal government that didn't allow us to best react to the information available. Uh, and so that's a kind of structural, systemic problem within the federal government. And mixed in with this, I think there was real signs of hubris. And by that, I mean a feeling somehow, and it beggars the imagination looking back, but somehow Canada is going to escape this onslaught. Somehow Canada is really ready for it, even though, as the Auditor General herself has said, um, we, we never tested our pandemic plan for the decade before uh, COVID-19 arrived. So, you know, I think we had very high regard for ourselves. We also had stuck our head in the sands. And that um, uh, imaginative element to say, wow, this is really bad and there's lots of signs that it's really bad, just never took hold. Dr. Tam chaired the Pandemic Readiness Committee in 2006 after SARS. Yep. So what explains her failure to see this? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, and and as the Auditor General has said, you know, this is not a problem unique to Canada or, or individuals, any individual in Canada. The World Health Organization has a kind of schematic around pandemics and, and in, in cycles. And, and part of it, that schematic is to identify what's called officially the interpandemic period. That's, that's the period between pandemic outbreaks. And, and I think it's widely recognized that when you're in that interpandemic period, it's easy to forget about your historical experiences. It's easy to forget about the need to, you know, stay on the ball in terms of, of preparedness. And I think Canada frankly suffered from that. There is an, you know, there's another interesting dimension to our engagement with the WHO, which is that Dr. Tam was Canada's representative on the WHO emergency committee that met to consider whether or not uh, the WHO should declare that pandemic um, uh, health emergency on January 30th. So she was part of that international conversation. It's a behind-closed-doors conversation that was taking place in, in Geneva, led by the WHO. But even that didn't seem to have made a, a huge impact on official thinking in Ottawa. Hmm. And, and uh, uh, how much of it is her responsibility? Uh, you know, it's hard for me to say, and I think I would, you know, step back from that and say, you know, uh, finger pointing probably doesn't get us anywhere. Uh, what there has to be, I think, is a recognition that really profound changes have to take place. I mean, you, you asked the Auditor General, you know, did, did she think that, that big structural changes need to, need to take place in the Public Health Agency of Canada? To a certain extent, there, that is already underway. There's been a huge flood of new personnel into, uh, at the sort of senior levels into the public health agency as, as part of that restructuring. It's maybe ad hoc, but it's, it's going on. I think the key thing is, is to look to the future and to try and first identify really seriously, take seriously the identification of the problems that we suffered. You know, don't try and hide those under a, a blanket of political embarrassment or, or whatever, or defensiveness. Um, recognize the problems uh, get to work fixing them, and and don't try and fix them just in terms of internal working groups. It really has to be a, you know, it kind of has to be a pretty transparent pro a process of of fixing those problems. 
Uh huh. And um, in terms of, I mean, is part of it that you know the immediate danger fades? It's human nature, and and somebody looks at the money that's being spent and thinks, oh, we can we can do something better with that. Uh, <laughs> that's always a problem, of course. And federal government funding is stretched in a million directions, and and will be badly stretched in the future. As, as you know, all of your listeners will know. How are we going to make sure that we're going to approach it? portion enough resources to to better prepare for for you know future pandemics uh especially you know once um, the covid-19 current emergency begins to recede a bit whenever that day is and it keeps being extended of, of course but you know but that's the that's the job of government uh it's not to kind of govern in the day to day but also to think ahead and so very important we do that and you know very very important to just recognize the fact that that we didn't have the systems in place, uh, we weren't ready for COVID-19, uh, maybe we weren't spending enough money uh, in the appropriate sectors, and all of that has got to change. I, and I, you know, I think, as the Auditor General says, there will be more studies and bigger studies of this problem as we go forward. The Prime Minister has, has kind of gestured in that direction, has promised repeatedly that we'll learn lessons from COVID-19 when the time comes. Uh, those big those big studies are yet to come. The Auditor General's report is a good one, but it's a, it's a you know slice of the problem, uh, and we'll see more. What about that international alert system? First, I'd like you to clarify because uh, uh, from my reading of of the work on that, that I thought it had been cancelled, and the Auditor General said no, it was just kind of repurposed. Um, how? Uh, so w- which was it and how big a problem is that? We learned about this last summer that yeah. this uh, kind of international alert system uh, was not operational, let's say. Yeah. No, it, it definitely wasn't operational. It, it had been shuttered for reasons that remain mysterious. And it, w- it was shuttered in the spring of 2019. Timing Although is everything. What can I say? <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Well, so so, but it's important. I think probably for your listeners to understand exactly what was shuttered. So so the um, the organization called the Global Public Health Intelligence Network or GFIN, everything in Ottawa, as you know, has an acronym. Yep. GFIN was re- responsible for doing a variety of reports, but one of them was was called alerts, and alerts were single items that have been pulled out of their global media scanning, and they're an open source intelligence unit with pretty sophisticated technology. So they keep an eye on on global news reporting, trying to find signals that might indicate something dangerous is occurring in the health security field that governments are not yet talking about. It's not official. It gives us early warning. That system of sending alerts uh, was was shuttered uh, in the spring of 2019. It was only restarted uh, in the late summer of 2020, I think, honestly, after the Global Mail had done an investigation it become a matter of political embarrassment. So the, why that matters is that the alerts went not just to federal government officials and provincial and territorial counterparts, but they also went to an international subscriber base. And actually, the World Health Organization was an organization that, that uh, had in the past certainly relied on GFIN reporting for a good proportion of its own understanding of what was happening out there in terms of information you could extract from the global media. So we didn't, those alerts were shuttered. It meant that no Canadian warnings went out to that international subscriber base at all uh, during you know, the first nine months of, of COVID-19. Why does that matter? Well, it, it deprived perhaps arguably some countries around the world with an opportunity to pay their own attention to this crisis. It deprived the World Health Organization of a tool, and it deprived our own government of a potential sense of urgency uh, that could have, you know, that could have been animated by uh, following these alerts. And there wouldn't have been just one, but there would have been a whole series of them if the system had been up and running as as COVID nineteen began to spread. So. It was designed as an important instrument for global scanning. It was shut down. It was turned into a kind of domestic information uh, network focused on, you know, Canada and the United States and disease outbreaks in those two countries, which wasn't its original intention. So it was really too bad. And that's been being looked at by an independent panel uh, chaired by a former national security advisor, Margaret Bloodworth. And I, I expect her report, when it's meant, it's meant to be finished in May, will be pretty hard-hitting. And so what's the bottom line on all of this? 
the bottom line is we have to do better the next time. And, and we may not have a whole lot of time uh, to prepare for the next time. You know, uh, uh, people who are not that familiar with the history of pandemics like to say, well, you know, the last one was 100 years ago, talking about the Spanish flu in 1918. And, you know, so the notion is the horizon out there to, to really be ready is so long that we don't have to worry about it. But the reality is that that cycle of pandemic outbreaks is becoming narrower and narrower. They're coming at us uh, faster and faster. Uh, we've had a whole number of them since 2003 in SARS, and, and that cycle is only going to accelerate because you know, we live in a globalized world and, and the environment and habitat is, is changing. So, you know, we have to assume, uh, it may not sound like great news, but we have to assume that the next pandemic is right around the corner. I mean, literally, you know, it could be next year. And so, uh, you know, we can't be leisurely about making these fixes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> a dire warning, I would say, as if we needed one. Thank you so much, Wesley Wark. Really appreciate your time. No, great to chat. Thank you so much, Libby. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, another... Uh, Byproduct of the pandemic, hate crimes are on the rise, and they were even before this whole thing started. A troubling new report from StatsCan. We're going to get a look at that when we come back. Let me give you the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Hatred against minorities is on the rise in our country. StatsCan has released the latest figures on police-reported hate crimes, which make up only a small percentage of these crimes. And the numbers are for 2019, before the pandemic. And as we all know, the pandemic has made the situation a lot worse. So nearly half of all police-reported hate crimes were based on ethnicity in 2019 with black people most likely to be targeted, followed by people of Asian descent. And we know that since the advent of COVID-19, hate crimes against people of Asian descent has skyrocketed, but that increase started even beforehand. And when religion is the motive behind hate crimes, Jews are most often targeted, and while the police-reported incidents show a decrease, an annual audit conducted by B'nai Canada reported a record number of anti-Semitic incidents for the fourth consecutive year, and the number of police-reported incidents against Muslims also grew largely in Quebec. So, let me give the numbers. What do you think of all that it is not a pretty picture. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to go to Michael Levitt, President and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies, Dr. Mary Reed, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, that's OISE and Marva Wisdom, Senior Fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, focusing on equity inclusion and a founder of the Black Experience Project. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Having me. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Let us begin with Marva Wisdom. What's your reaction to these statistics, first of all? It is very disheartening uh, that um, hate has risen so much. I thought after the George Floyd killing, uh, the empathy level of uh, right across the country, right across the world indeed, had risen, where people recognized in their own vulnerability against uh, COVID-19 that the vulnerability that people feel uh, through racism and anti-Semitism and, and the attacks on persons because of their uh, color, creed, religion, or ethnicity, that that's not acceptable. And the vulnerability that these people feel was now being felt um, by uh, people at large. It is 
sad that as COVID-19 continues forward, uh, we see um, folks who are deciding that they need to find scapegoats. And unfortunately, I have to say that there's a leadership gap in addressing these issues, because we know that there's a direct link between the rhetoric of those who are in positions of power, who are in positions to be heard and covered by the media, and and those who want to follow them and 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 become and feel as if they're victims themselves and that they have someone to blame. I'm going to share some statistics with you later, but I know these are just yeah. opening remarks, so I'm going to turn okay. it back over you to Libby okay. uh, for my colleagues. Okay, uh, Dr. Mary Reed, and you're a member of the Asian Canadian community. And again, these numbers, they don't reflect the pandemic, but they, they show, uh, you know, a pretty hefty increase even beforehand. I don't know, and somehow the ground being prepared. I don't know. What is, what is your thought? I want to thank you for having me on this uh, panel and sharing the space with Marva and Michael. I'm very honored. And my response is, like Marva, I'm very disheartened, but I'm not at all surprised. You know, when we have a society with power differential where people in power operate through a white supremacist framework, this is the result. And we have to stand shoulder to shoulder against all forms of oppression, whether it be racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and we need to stand united. It can't just pick and choose. And we have to realize that all forms of oppression are intertwined. And we need white folks to be standing shoulder to shoulder with us, because if it's just going to be BIPOC folks... We are so drained. We are so emotionally drained and we're tired and exhausted because of the harm that is being done to us on a day-to-day basis. So that's my stance. And I, I, I've, I've just, got a lot more to go, but I'm going to shut up right now. <laughs> uh, frankly, I mean, what I hear from our leaders, be it at the city, from uh, Mayor Tory or the Prime Minister, I mean, they are very vocal. Uh, I, I I don't think that you could call them white supremacists, for sure not. And they it's are not, very, yeah. very vocal. Uh, this is systemic. Like, they themselves yeah. may be very empathetic, absolutely. But it is the systems, it is the policies, it is the institutional procedures and protocols. Um, for example, the police briefings of the Atlanta shootings. That was despicable. The police briefings that highlighted the killer and demoralized and devalued the victims, like that in itself was done through a white supremacist lens. In another Um, country? Oh, we are not immune. I well, can agree with right, that. Yeah, we are not immune. Just yeah. because we're in Canada, we are not immune to that. Okay, let's bring I, in Michael Levitt. Your reaction to uh, uh, the statistics on uh, anti-Semitism, I guess, the oldest hatred. Well, thank you. And, and I really appreciate being on the panel with uh, two such distinguished uh, individuals as well. So thank you for in- including myself and the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center. It's concerning. Listen, it is absolutely concerning. Um, hate against one of us is hate against us all. And as, as both of the other guests have, have, have so uh, well articulated, it does require us to all stand up raise our voices against hate. And when we see the targeting of the black community or the Asian community in Canada, um, the Jewish community, all the others, it it is absolutely necessary for us not just to call it out, but for us to take action, for us to push for change. Uh, In in, uh, the work that we do at Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center, um, education is the key. Education is the key. We're in classrooms every day, uh, and we can certainly get into more of a discussion about how we're approaching these issues, because, um, you know, as Simon Wiesenthal himself said, freedom is not a gift from heaven. You have to fight for it every day of your life. And that is the message we bring through the lessons of the Holocaust to children, uh, to students throughout the country about how they ha- how they can use that to empower the uh, the the fight against the, the the racism that they face, the experience that they're having. Because again, these things um, they must be accounted for. And of course, we're seeing. You mentioned it, Libby. The the the, the pandemic has created a crisis. We know that during times of crisis. Hate rises. 
we know that the singling out of the other, you mentioned uh, anti-Semitism as the, the oldest hate, and we often call it the, you know, the canary in the coal mine because we see it rear its ugly head in times of crisis. But we know the experiences that, again, the Black and the Asian communities are having. We know that through this pandemic, hate is on the rise. Um, I know these recent numbers are pre-pandemic, but we're just hearing it. You know, that we hear about it. We're getting phone calls. We had a phone call over the weekend about um, a, a vandalism of a TTC uh, bus shelter with real, you know, a real anti-Semitic blood libel uh, uh, symbolism on it. We know that this fight is happening every day, and we're certainly committed um, and engaged in working with other communities to make sure that we are doing all that we can. Uh, Marva Wisdom, uh, and first of all, I also want to point out that this report had an increase in uh, in hate crimes against uh, uh, people uh, of uh, different genders or homosexuality or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's nobody was uh, spared. Uh, is it just a matter that, you know, yes, uh, people have to blame somebody? Does it is it as simple as that? Um, Libby, um, it's not as simple as that. I totally agree that that's a huge component where um, people feel that there always has to be someone less than them. They need someone to blame. And I I think Michael said it um, quite well when he spoke about uh, the blame piece. That is a component. I want to go back just very briefly to the leadership piece. One of the issues that we have around leadership is that now with media and social media, it doesn't matter where the leader is. Their impact is felt wherever we are. So even though we're in the United States, um, what Justin Trudeau might do or what Mayor Tory might do or the mayor here in, in Guelph, what they might do might matter to a certain degree. But when people turn to social media and they see the immediacy of the hate and when people start following um some groups, and then get caught up in a vortex, oh, yes, I have someone that I can blame. I want to go back to the way things were, sort of the dog whistle thing, right, Uh, and how we used to treat others. And now I need to, I am losing my position in society. When leadership doesn't tackle that and doesn't call that out, it becomes a problem whether the leader is here or elsewhere. That's why who we choose who we elect and who we select wherever we are is so critical and so important. I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of statistics. Okay. Um, the Chinese population in uh, from 2019 to 2020, Focus Canada and Environics Institute did a survey on race relations, and they were looking at Black people, Indigenous people, and Chinese people, and they were looking at um, racism and discrimination and how Canadians, uh, Canadians' attitude toward whether uh, racism still exists in Canada and to what degree. And in 2019, the survey showed that 26% of people generally disagreed that uh, discrimination is no longer a problem uh, for Chinese people. And by the time we got to fall 2020, when another survey was released, it went up to 55%. So there is the hopefulness that it more than 50% of the people, how they responded, they have changed their attitude and recognized that racism and discrimination has become a huge problem. And we see similar trends, whether it be black people or others, um, or people of faith. We've seen the trends taking place. So while we're having more racism, more overt racism, we are also having people who are working to learn more, to become more aware. Mary talked about um, becoming more aware and us working together. And they're doing things and taking on initiatives to help them fight systemic racism and anti-Semitism and homophobia and Islamophobia. They are working to ensure that they're building a better society. So there's the hopefulness that more people now are recognizing and acknowledging that there was a problem. Whereas before they were saying, eh, it's there, but it's not that bad. So uh, Mary Reed, how really bad. Mary Reed, how much of the problem is social media? It's a huge problem. I'm not on Twitter anymore because I'm just, it just so um, disheartens me and, and gets me so angry. So a lot of it is social media where you go down the rabbit hole 
and you um, end up being on uh, accounts, following accounts that uh, support your initial no- notion. So if you have racist uh, undertones and beliefs and values, then you're going to be reinforced by uh, uh, people who handle racist accounts. So um, that's unfortunately that, and there's, you know, there's no vetting process in social media and you could hide behind anonymous accounts and profiles. So that's, that's one of the um, downfalls of social media. But then there, there's hope, like, like um, Marva said, I, I believe there is hope. And I feel like um, people are uniting and working together in solidarity. I was at the rally on Sunday, uh, the rally against anti-Asian racism, and there were um, over 5,000 people. And there were people, a lot of Asian people, but I saw people from all different uh, identities and diverse backgrounds. And we were in solidarity together, um, supporting one another. And uh, I I do feel that we, uh, as we move forward, education, as Michael said, is the key. And I'm in education. And this is, that is the main facet in our society that I feel can make transformational change. And education starting very, very young. So, um, I, I feel hopeful, even oh. though we're in a very uh, dark time right now. Okay, we've got to take a break. Everybody hang on, please. Before we go to break, the number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we are talking about the latest report on hate crimes and also how the pandemic may have exacerbated all of this. And we'll have more on that when we come back on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the latest report of police-reported hate crimes, which are only a small percentage. And Michael Levitt, you focus on education in the classroom, but what are your thoughts for you stopping the the nefarious influence of social media and all of this? It is um, an enormous issue. And uh, I, I actually, as a former parliamentarian, I sit on an interparliamentary, an international interparliamentary task force to combat online anti-Semitism. And of course, it raises the issues of hate generally on the Internet. I mean, listen, you just have to consider that it took until uh, late in 2020 for Facebook and then Twitter to actually take a stand against Holocaust denial on their platforms. Uh, because prior to that, it, it actually had a level of acceptance. It, it wasn't being dealt with appropriately. But we know the rabbit hole that people go down, people that are vulnerable um, to messages of hate, the, the people that are fueling um, the, the websites that are preaching this hate, that are peddling this hate, are sophisticated. They have algorithms that draw in um, people, and again, it perpetuates itself on the Internet. You just have to look at some of the metrics around January 6th uh, in Washington, D.C. You know, we, we saw the, the types of people that were pulled, pulled. There was a gravity pulling them towards the Capitol on that day with, uh, you know, Camp Auschwitz T-shirts on as an example. Uh, you know, we know the type of people that were there. And again, it's the, um, the misinformation, the disinformation, the algorithms that drive you, you, you know, you type in uh, a, a, a keyword search that, that can then lead you in a whole different direction and it perpetuates. And I think really there's a responsibility for governments um, in all countries and it's going to require co- cooperation and collaboration internationally. But because again, these companies transcend borders. But there's a real obligation where, uh, where social media and online hate is concerned for, um, for our governments to really step up, work together, and start addressing um, this toxic brew that exists on the Internet because we see the hate fueled there so often. It's not the only place. But for those that are vulnerable to that messaging, especially to, uh, to students, as an example, we're talking about the education piece, um, so much of that misinformation and disinformation just thrives, uh, and you don't have to look too far to find it. Marva, are things better now that Donald Trump is no longer president and he's off Twitter? I, 
I, I hope so. I think um, our mental health might be slightly better. <laughs> um, and I'm saying that because I remember, uh, as Michael alluded to, the conversation that was taking place um, uh, uh, on, on January 6th. And I remember standing and watching and couldn't leave the television but didn't want to watch because I couldn't believe what was taking place. And there are so many people that shared that they were in that same position, that they could not believe that leadership was encouraging this kind of behavior. And I go back to leadership always. And I believe it is better now because people are starting to be a bit more hopeful, but it what happened had gone so far that it has emboldened so many people, those who have come out of their foxholes and have decided that they have a right to treat people um, in a disparaging way, to attack people, to physically assault people. That was happening before, but it was an exception for the most part, you didn't find it quite as overt, but now there's an emboldenedness, and uh, it, it worries me a fair bit. But I do think things will get better. They're really bad now, but I'm hopeful that things get, will get better because the awareness is starting to be there. And I see corporations, more than anything, before corporations, you know, inclusivity, it's a check, checkbox, right? Racism is a checkbox. Yeah, I'll what agree is with that. Is that it's it's they're digging deep and leaning in and being uncomfortably comfortable in that conversation, whereas before that was not happening. Okay, so I, I want to throw something out that's not in this report and just uh, see what you think. Um, might be uh, uh, a little bit off topic, but the other ism that I think has been extremely exacerbated through the pandemic is ageism and it's institutionalized and uh, it's killing people. Uh, yeah. What are your I, thoughts on that, uh, yes. Dr. Reed? So there's intersectionality. So definitely there is ageism and um, that intersects. So if you look at the report, the nationwide survey found that uh, 1,000 self-reported incidents of anti-Asian racism, which started, uh, you know, when the pandemic started, you know, ranging from physical assaults to racial slurs, and the majority of them targeted older Asian women. And uh, that intersectionality is really important, but definitely there is ageism, and um, it's really heartbreaking because in Asian culture, our elders are are valued. They are to be um, treated with honor and respect, and yet they are being targets of hate. So um, part of that is the the stereotype that Asian women are obedient, we're quiet, and older women are weaker, and, you know, we're, we're seen as the perpetual foreigner. You know, I'm always asked, where are you really from? Or, wow, your English is so excellent. How did you learn it so quickly? I've been asked that my entire life. I, when you, you're asked this all the time, you, it takes a toll on your sense of belonging. And um, my intersectionality as a woman in my 50s, I'm now feeling really unsafe. I know I have power and privilege. I'm well-educated. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto. But I am afraid to go outside in this current sociocultural political context landscape we're in because of my age, because of my gender, and because of my race. Michael Levitt, what are, what are your thoughts on the age question? Well, listen, I, I, I think it's important to look at the, at the onset of the pandemic and where the highest vulnerability was. People that had had their voices taken away that were invisible. And my, my mom's 81 years old, vibrant, and, and thank goodness, goodness recently uh, vaccinated. I think like so many Canadians, uh, you know, when, when we feel an immense sense of relief when our parents, our grandparents, uh, seniors in our society are, are finally getting the vaccine. Um, but, but there's no doubt that we need as a society to have a long, hard look 
at how this played out in the early stages and how we're treating uh, our senior population, uh, you know, whether uh, those suffering from social isolation um, in homes if they're living alone. And, of course, we know what happened uh, in uh, in the uh, care facilities uh, across the country, in Ontario particularly. So these are big issues. Let me say this. One of the things that is central to the work we do, I'm going to bring it right back to education again. Our education experience begins with the voices of Holocaust survivors. It's Holocaust survivors now virtually connecting with students across the country. Last week, I believe we were we ran presentations with survivors in four provinces, uh, over 1,800 students, and we 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 build on the experience by Holocaust survivors sharing what they went through, the hate, the the uh, the killing, the loss that they suffered. And then relating that in a universal way, in a universal message about respect, rights and responsibility and how that connects to the experience that these students from a variety of backgrounds are having today, how that should empower them. But we know that in the case of Holocaust survivors, their voices are diminishing. Their first person voices are diminishing. But working in common cause, again, um, you know, with the, com- with the communities that are, that are out there facing, you know, the, the challenges, I think it's exceptionally important to value um, the voices of seniors and make sure we're, we're taking those voices and using it to inspire youth across the country. Marva, I'm going to give you the last word, and I have a, a question. I mean, we are uh, in the midst of the trial against uh, the policeman who killed George Floyd. Where does that uh, leave everything? Uh, that is, uh, because that was a turning point for so many people, it is important where what the outcome is. I think the outcome of this will make a difference in in whether people continue having that hope that change is happening and change will happen. One of the things that impacted me a great deal in looking at some of the clips from that trial, and I'm sure it impacts a lot of people, is the pain of those people who witnessed, witnessed this. And when we talk about allyship, when you're a witness to racism and systemic racism and homophobia and Islamophobia and anti-Semitism, when you're a witness to that, and especially if you have empathy, it creates mental health stress, not only for that person who's going through it, but for you as a bystander, unless you can do something. And many of those bystanders could do little but to watch that man die and gasp his last breath. The only thing they could do is speak afterwards. And we're asking now for people not to wait for people to gasp their last breath, not to wait until our society is gotten to so low uh, that the vulnerability of the weakest in our society, and when we say the weakest, those who are not being paid attention to, those with health detriments, what the weakest people end up dying, losing their lives, or losing their mental health because we stood by and did nothing. It all ties into the kind of society that we want to build if we don't smarten up and start recognizing and realizing that the system that we are built on, uh, and uh, Mary spoke a little bit earlier, and and you spoke, Mary, so uh, well about a colonial system. We need to break that down a little bit and okay. build back up stronger. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Okay. Thank you Thank so you much. much. Mike, Thank you. My Michael pleasure. Levitt, Dr. Mary Reed, and Marva Wisdom. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.